first of all, he wasn't getting into my space. I was in his. Like, this was his bar. Right. I was in his bar. He wasn't in mine. And second of all, in this weird way, he was actually trying to create a bond with me. Like, he wasn't even exactly being homophobic. He was sort of saying, like, look at this great place we have. We even tolerate people like you. Why would you want to jeopardize that? And it sounds strange to say, but, like, in that moment... I felt really grateful to have access to that experience that I would never otherwise have. And the next day, I flew home to Washington, D.C. I returned to my happy bubble with my husband and my house and my dogs with this memory of this experience of encountering somebody whose worldview was so different from mine and having something like a real interaction with them that I never otherwise would have had. Hi. I'm Rachel Hollis, and this is my podcast. I spend so many hours of every single week reading and listening to podcasts and watching YouTube videos and trying to find out as much as I can about the world around me. And that's what we do on this show. We talk about everything, life and how to be an entrepreneur. What happened to dinosaurs? What's the best recipe for fried chicken? What's the best plan for intermittent fasting? What's going on with our inner child? How's therapy working out for you? Whatever it is my guests are into, I want to unpack it so that we can all understand. These are conversations. This is information for the curious. This is the Rachel Hollis Podcast. It's launch day. Yeah. Can we talk about that? I'd love to. Um, I feel like I have some processing to okay, do. Okay, yeah. I'm, so <laughs> forgive me for not knowing, is this your first book? It is my first okay. book. Okay. So tell me how that has felt. It's felt really vulnerable because even though I'm used to storytelling, the stories are typically not about me. You know, yeah. as a journalist, I am introducing my listeners, my audience to others. Yes. And I try to be a surrogate for them. And I try to tell stories where people can put themselves in my shoes. And so I almost try to like fade into the background yeah. often. And this book, it's a memoir. So obviously it is about me. And so I feel like I'm putting myself out there in a way that I don't often. Yeah. And the idea of people all over who I've never met experiencing these stories in their own personal context is like related to, but fundamentally different from the experience of sitting in your car, listening to NPR and hearing yeah. me tell a story. Yeah. Because ultimately the person at the center of these stories in many cases is not the refugee or the politician or the artist. It's me. Yeah. So, and, yeah. and it's like, how do you, or maybe you didn't experience this, but how do you talk about yourself when you're so used to highlighting other people? Mm -hmm. How do you talk about yourself Without second guessing, like, is this interesting? Is this douchey? Totally. Is it right? Is this self-aggrandizing? <laughs> yeah. I've been everybody has told me not to read the Goodreads reviews, which Never. I've ignored. Never. And so I've been enjoying finding like the pull quotes from the hilarious reviews. And there's one that I love that said, just the right mix of ego and insecurity. And I was like, <laughs> I'll okay, take it. I'll take I'll it. Take I'll it. Take right. That. There are worse things to be called. The first right. time I wrote a book. I, no one had ever told me like, don't read reviews. And I was just this baby idiot. And I would scroll Amazon every day. I'd like go in and there'd be one new review. Cause I had like five readers mm -hmm. and every day it would be something nice. And I would be like, oh God, yes. <gasps> okay, yeah. great. And then one day I went on 
and there was a negative one star review and she said uh, it was vapid and trite amazing and i had a mental breakdown course, like i went down course. i was like such a shame spiral i'm such why did i even try even like, if it was one review out of a hundred yes. it's so crazy so i always say I, to this day, from that moment, I have never read another review, good or bad. I, have I respect no idea. your ability to do that Honestly. so much. But I read about this in your book that you like collect. I collect hate mail. Okay, talk yeah, about I this. I collect hate mail. So my first job at NPR right after my internship there was as a temp on Morning Edition. Right. And one of my jobs was to go through the listener email inbox and forward the messages to all the correspondents. And so there was just a ton of hate mail. And I would forward it. But as the most junior person on the staff, I was like, oh, these big, important storytellers are getting all this hate mail. And so when I became a reporter and then a host, and I started getting my own hate mail, I was like, I have arrived. I am now one of those people who is loathed by some listeners. And so I don't collect all of the email, but if somebody actually takes the time to put pen to paper <laughs> or print something out and put a stamp on it, I will save it. And there's actually one that I have framed on my desk. Yes. That sat there for more than a decade. It's a postcard. And it arrived the first time I filled in as a guest host on Morning Edition. Right. So you haven't even been doing it long. No. And I have it memorized because I love it so much. It has tulips and the stamp is a dove of peace. Obviously. And the message says, dear Ari, please butch up. I find a daily dose of your personality annoying. I'm a person too. D. Emerson, Miami, Florida. Oh my god! And I have no idea who D. Emerson right. is, but I have saved that postcard and it's just, and I haven't butched up. I, I mean, <laughs> what I love though is like, I don't have this thing. Like someone says something negative and I curl into a ball and die. And it takes me loads of therapy to get back out. Okay. But you have the ability to not read true. the reviews, which I true. lack. So okay. you can teach me the skill of okay. not reading and I can teach you the okay. skill of dealing with it with a laugh. But it seems like, again, based on what I read, that this is sort of a personality trait you had young because you were really unique in that you came out really early, that you came out in a place, I mean, Fargo. I didn't know you were from Fargo. Yeah, so I was born in Fargo. And like the narrative is when I was in the first grade, my brother and I were the only Jewish kids in our elementary school. And we would go from classroom to classroom around Christmas time with a menorah and a dreidel. <laughs> explaining to kids in our elementary school what Hanukkah was. But you liked this. I liked it. Right, it was okay. like, oh, people are paying attention to me. People are listening Got to it. me. And more importantly, I'm helping them to understand something that feels foreign and weird and strange. Yeah. And then when I was eight, my family moved to Portland, Oregon. And I came out of the closet at age 16 in Portland, you know, when there was an anti-gay rights measure on the ballot. So everybody in my high school had opinions about queer people, but didn't actually know any queer people to their knowledge. <laughs> right. And so I was kind of like the person who all of their opinions could be piled on top of. And so, you know, I came to school with like a pink triangle pin on my backpack and I plastered my locker with gay pride paraphernalia and postcards of hunky men. And I was like, all right, you've got opinions about gay people, lay them on me. Like I'm one of them, I'm here. Tell me what you want to say and we'll have a conversation about it. Right. And what I realize now is that as a journalist, I'm, I can take those skills that I acquired as the Jewish kid in Fargo, as the gay teen in Portland, and 
walk between worlds, even if I have no personal connection to them. So like mm-hmm. I can go to a bikers for Trump rally and my, have you done that? I have, Whoa. and you know, my microphone and headset are like a snorkel and mask that allow me to explore worlds that I would never otherwise have access to. And I can walk up to people and I can say, tell me about what motivates you. Tell me about your family. Tell me about what you, what you care deeply about. And then I can bring that to an audience that would never otherwise have access to that. Right. So the skills that I gained in kind of walking between worlds among parts of my own life, I can now apply to worlds that I'm just curious about. Now, for real though, I have always wondered this and I'm so excited to ask an actual journalist who does it. The idea of going and speaking to someone who I know is going to say something that to my core, I disagree with. Keep professional, not just like break down and start crying. Mm-hmm. Cause I'm not um, confrontational in any yeah. way. I'm not good at that. And I watch people do this all the time where they'll go, you know, Chelsea Handler or go interview someone or are you separating yourself? How do you do that thing? For me, it is a pursuit of curiosity. Mm. And whether I agree with somebody or not is actually beside the point. And it's not that I'm trying to set aside my opinions and stifle them so I don't snap back at the person. It's that I truly want to know where they're coming from. And so, you know, I'll give you an example. I was in Mississippi doing a story about HIV in the United States, which Mississippi still has the highest rate of HIV infection in the U.S., largely among black men who have sex with men. And a lot of that has to do with stigma. And Mississippi had recently passed a state law that allowed doctors to deny medical treatment to people based on moral objections. Shut up. Yeah, and so after- What year? Like this happened recently? Oh, this was during the Trump administration, so it was not that long ago. And so, you know, first, I actually, this is not the point of the story, but when I went to Mississippi, I went on, there's a, a, a gay hookup app that is mostly used by black men. And so I downloaded it and I created a profile that very clearly said, I'm a journalist, I'm looking to talk to people about HIV. And so through that app, I met people who gave me interviews. And then I went and I talked to the lawmaker who had sponsored the law allowing doctors to deny treatment based on moral objections. And in that conversation, I wasn't there to convince him that he was wrong. I wasn't there to try to nail him to the wall. I was there to really try to understand where he was coming from. And it's funny, at one point he said in the conversation, he was like, well, you know, if there were a daily pill you could take to prevent HIV infection, maybe it would be different. But, and I said, really? well, actually That's there just, is. Yeah, just yeah. like, so we're clear on the facts here, there, there is. And he was like, oh, oh, okay, well, that's interesting. You know, and I wasn't <sighs> trying to like embarrass him, but I really wanted to get to the bottom of sort of what motivates him, what inspires him, where is he coming from? What is this about? What is his philosophy? And, and helping other people understand that is a service that I can provide that in my mind is more useful than telling someone they're wrong about something. Yeah, God, that's so real. Have you ever interviewed someone where you very much disagreed in your heart with their stance, but in talking with them, you were like, oh, uh, okay, you're an idiot still, but I understand at least where that's coming from. You know, I wouldn't say you're an of idiot course still, you wouldn't, but Ari. I, once you see someone's worldview and someone's experience, it is really hard. Oh my God, I'm about to give this example that is so yes, I obscure love it already. I love and it already. ridiculous. But okay, yesterday somebody asked me my favorite Jennifer Lopez movie and I oh, mentioned The Cell 
from 20 years ago where she plays an investigator who goes inside the brain of a serial killer and is trying to find where the bodies are hidden. It's crazy. Wow, okay. this is obscure. It's obscure. I'm, I told you it's a, it's a deep I'm going to go with Made in Manhattan, but okay, sure. you, you do you. So she's like, you know, in the mind of the serial killer and she finds this abused child who was him as a young kid. And it's not to excuse the actions that people take. It's not to excuse the decisions that people make. But if I can understand where someone is coming from. Absolutely. What motivates even their racism, their homophobia, their sexism, whatever it might be, I want to understand them more fully. And so it's not an issue of, oh, well, I still think you're an idiot, but, or you've convinced me to agree with you where I previously thought you were wrong. It's the whole book is about, in many ways, trying to get past the assumption that we are all on opposite teams and find the common shared experience yeah. that we all have. And there are so many powerful forces trying to persuade us to see each other as enemies, as adversaries, that if I can introduce my readers, my listeners, my audience to people who they think of as an idiot, as an enemy, as an opponent, and help them actually understand what motivates that person, I feel like that's the best service I can provide. And that's so much of what this book is about. And not only in terms of political differences, but also, you know, one of the realizations I had over my time as a reporter, particularly as a foreign correspondent, was that I thought of people living in war zones as somehow a different kind of person. I thought of refugees as like a category of people who were somehow different from us. And it was only when I went out and started covering wars and reporting on refugee crises and talking to people in the midst of this that I realized, of course, I'm the idiot. You know, I see these people as different and they are not at all different. And so right. then the challenge becomes, how do I tell a story that will help somebody picking up their kids from school see this Syrian English teacher who is trying to make his way from Turkey to Germany as a person with the same needs, wants, challenges, well, different challenges, obviously, but experience reality as, as all of us. Right. Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home. Debit card users, listen up. You've worked hard for your money. Now it's time to make it work even harder for you. With Discover Cashback Debit, everyone can get cash back on everyday debit card purchases. That's right. Earn on things like gas, groceries, and even that midday latte. And to top it off, there are no fees, period. Yep, that means you won't be charged fees on your checking account. Transaction eligibility and terms at discover.com slash cashbackdebit. Discover Bank, member FDIC. I admire so much 
that intention. I think it's a really beautiful way to do what you do. And I think it is the answer, frankly, because everything does feel so divisive and it does feel so us versus them and mm -hmm. this versus that. And it also on a sort of fear-based level for me feels like manipulation of the, if we can be more divided, then and that's we what can be social controlled. media wants. Right. That's 100%. what political parties want. That's what brands want. You know, I'm a Coke person. You're a Pepsi person. Yes. We have to fight about it. Right. <laughs> you know, like whatever the right. case may be. And so my goal in this book, as in my reporting, as in my, you know, singing with the band Pink Martini and performing with Alan Cumming is just to help break people out of their bubbles and help people see the unfamiliar as a bit less strange a lot like when I was that first grader going from classroom to classroom with a menorah and a dreidel saying, this is what Hanukkah is. Right. Do you get any pushback? I feel like NPR is such a beautiful like shield in some way, but do you get any pushback when you report for one side or the other or tell someone's story? Do oh, pe people absolutely. freak out? They're like, how dare you? Well, okay. so I spent a year embedded with the Romney campaign in 2012 covering that presidential election. Wow. And so I traveled with Romney and reported on what Romney said and did week after week after week. And as you can imagine, when you are embedded with a presidential candidate of one party, a lot of people are going to have a lot of opinions about what you include, what you exclude, how you frame what he said, how you, you know, every decision you make gets weaponized. Mm. But at some point, you just have to do your work and let the chips fall where they may. And I mean, I may not be able to resist reading reviews, but... <laughs> But when political partisans are saying, why did you quote this line instead of that line? Like, if called on to do so, I can defend my choices, but most of the time I can just tune it out. Yeah, I think it's really cool because if I'm being honest, I shy away from guests like that are pitched for the show that I feel like are deeply one side mm -hmm. because I have a fear of people saying, how dare you include- yeah this perspective, but at the same time, my core value, I'm just working at, we're having a therapy session. My Please. core value is that if you actually just met someone and if you got to know someone, you would find commonality always. Absolutely. Yeah. So I, maybe we're having this conversation because the universe needs me to stop being such a wuss. Well, and then the question <laughs> is like, what can we find in common and what can we build on? And so like, there's a story I tell in the book about being in coastal Turkey. I meet this structural engineer named Ahmad and um, I wanted to interview him. And so we went to a cafe and we sat down to tea and we each ordered tea and the bill came and he insisted on paying the bill. And I was like, no, 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 no. Like, this is a work trip. I can expense this to my company. It may be public radio, but they'll pay for tea. Yeah. And he was like, do you think I'm just poor because I'm a refugee? Like, do you think I'm not able to pay for my tea because I'm trying to get on a crowded raft and have human smugglers take me to Europe? And eventually I convinced him to let me split the bill with him. But it was this moment of like, he was insisting on meeting me where I was and not being pigeonholed as someone with a label of refugee. And it was part of what I'm describing about trying to overcome that bridge of seeing people as other, as different, and, and connect with them just the way you and I are connecting across this table right now. Yeah. How do you feel like your work has changed or has it changed over the last five years, let's say, with I feel like the stakes in media and the stakes in social media are so much higher and there's such a, a more significant lens on everything we do. Has that changed the way that you do the work that you do? 
I think the Trump administration taught us to um, be really clear about when something is not true. To We call it a true sandwich. Like if Trump is going to claim that he actually won the 2020 election, before we state his claim, we're going to say that it's false. And then we're going to describe what he said. And afterwards, we're going to say, you know, however many courts have evaluated that claim and all found that it was false. So I also think we have become way more, I have become way more deliberate about showing how I do my work, why and how I make the decisions I do, because there is such an assault on the media, which I think really threatens to undermine democracy, that I think in order to rebuild that trust, we can't just assume that because we say something or do something in a certain way, people will say, oh, well, that's something I can respect and believe and trust. We actually have to earn that. And I think we're working a little harder to do that than we used to. I think we used to kind of take it for granted. Mm. How do you do that work? Is there a structure from story concept to a piece is on air? What does mm -hmm. that look like for Some you? Some of it is, you know, describing why we're using an anonymous source, as opposed to just saying somebody who didn't want to be quoted said, obviously journalists have used anonymous sources forever, but when you have prominent politicians saying, I never believe anything that is attributed to an anonymous source, even while they are giving blind quotes to journalists to just quote anonymously, you say like, here's how, when, and why we use anonymous sources to help educate our audience, our listeners. And so that's what I mean by showing your work and explaining how and why you're doing what you do and the way you do it. Are there in your mind sort of layers of what it is to be a journalist because I know there has been so much pushback in the last however many years on fake news mm -hmm. or journalism and people are attacked for doing this work yeah but then what is the is there a layer or a line or something that's like well this is real journalism if we're allowed to say it and yeah. this is clickbait oh of course calling themselves a journalist well, I mean what I have wrestled with over the years is that like, as I describe in the book, I kind of came of age in a time where it was prioritizing the view from nowhere and being the voice of objectivity and your identity and your lived experience and your history were to be set aside and not incorporated whatsoever into the work that you were doing as a journalist. And what I sort of explore in the book is this push pull between on the one hand, wanting to be the surrogate for the listeners we talked about, and on the other hand, wanting to recognize that my history, my identity, the person I am, actually does shape the stories I tell, as it does with all of us. Yeah. And so I tell the story about going to cover the Pulse nightclub shooting in Orlando. And when I went down there, I thought, I volunteered to go cover that massacre. And I knew Can that I- ask I, why? Because there are a lot of stories that I approach as an outsider, and I think there's value to that. But this was a story that I knew I could bring something unique to. Mm. Because I had been to gay bars, and I knew how important they are. I had spent time in gay clubs. I had made friends there. And why not are only they, in gay why bars, are they important? They are a place that can provide community and safety. They can be a church for people rejected by organized religion. They are a center where activists have organized and people have escaped harm. Um, the modern gay rights movement in America started in a gay bar, the Stonewall, not far from where we're yeah. sitting right now. And it was only at the end of the week that I spent in Orlando reporting on the massacre. That, so I knew that in 2004, I had been bar hopping in Orlando. But by the time I went to cover the Pulse nightclub shooting, I thought, 
whatever bar that was where I had made friends with those bartenders and gone out the following night with them and made friends, it had long since closed. And I didn't remember the name of it. And at the end of my week in Orlando, I was interviewing the editor of the free weekly paper, uh, Watermark, and he's since passed away. His name was Billy Maines. And before the conversation on tape, I was just sort of making small talk. And I said, yeah, I actually went bar hopping in Orlando years ago, and I made friends with these bartenders. And he said, what was the bar? And I said, oh, I, I don't remember the name of it. I'm sure it's closed years ago. And he said, well, what did it look like? And so I described the layout. You sort of walk in the front door and there's a dance floor to your left and there's like this kind of loungy bar area to your right. And he said, that was Pulse. And I suddenly realized that like these memories that I had, these bartenders that I had met, this, these friends that I had made were not only in the same city where this massacre had happened, they were in that bar. In the room, yeah. And the, the two bartenders, um, one had moved on, one was still working at Pulse but was not working there the night of the massacre. But... I realized like any pretense of distance that I had from that story vanished, but far from implying that I therefore should not be there covering this story, it brought a richness and depth and meaning to that story that my colleagues who were also reporting from Orlando, who were doing a very good job, just could not bring to it. Absolutely. And so in answer to your question, I think there's been this evolution where I still do believe in objectivity and I still do believe that we should try to be a surrogate for the listener. And also, even though it seems contradictory, I believe that our history and our identity and the stories we carry with us shape the stories we tell and that that's important and that's valuable and that shouldn't be ignored either. A hundred percent. And I think knowing the perspective that you're bringing to something, it, there's a connection that happens as the listener, especially for me, if you're in a situation, if you're at a bikers for Trump mm -hmm. rally, because I'm like, damn, yeah, that this is incredible because you really are. It's even more impressive than just blind objectivity. Is it just, at least to me, I'm like, this is so professional. This is such a beautiful way to approach this. I, I think of this one moment where I was in Toledo and I was doing stories about refugee resettlement in the United States. And I went to this sort of working class bar near the auto plant. And my producer and I were trying to find somebody who would say, like, we don't want refugees here. And we found him. He was this Air Force guy. You're like, and it wasn't hard. It was. <laughs> we were in Toledo. Actually, shockingly. Oh, cool. Toledo okay. has had generations and generations of immigration. Mm -hmm. And so we kept looking for people. And a lot of people were like, well, you know, my grandfather came over for, from Czechoslovakia and they didn't think he was white or, or whatever the case may be. Cool. So it was harder than you might think. But we okay. found the guy. Okay. So he was this Air Force guy and he was clearly a few beers in. And um, and he was like, well, you know, if they want to come here and eat chicken wings and drink beer and speak English, that's fine with me. But if they're going to try to come here and wear a headscarf, I'm not into that, that kind of oh thing, you know? Yeah. So I was like, okay, that's the closest thing we're going to find to an anti-refugee sentiment. And then because it was the end of our workday, um, Matt and I were like, all right, well, let's just sit down at the bar and have a beer. We're done. So we sit down and we have a beer at this sort of bar near the auto plant. And that guy who had given us the quote, comes kind of stumbling back up to us and he comes up and he kind of gets in my face and he says, let me ask you a question. I was like, okay, you let me ask you a question. So I'll let you ask me a question. And he goes, you're gay, aren't you? You seem gay. And I was like, yeah, yeah, I am. Sure am. Sure am. And he goes, well, they throw people like you off buildings. Why would you want them here? And I sort of like, I froze. I kind of had like an out of body experience and I think I, I kind of wanted to say, we well, should see what they do to the gay Jews, but I didn't. <laughs> I said, 
I mean, he was referring to ISIS, right. whatever. Right. I, and, and I sort of stumbled and said something like, well, you know, I have a lot of, I know a lot of gay Syrian people and, you know, shouldn't they have a place to be said? I don't know what I said, but, but in the moment it was this really surreal experience because I felt like, first of all, he wasn't getting into my space. I was in his, like this was his bar. Right. I was in his bar. He wasn't in mine. And second of all, in this weird way, he was actually trying to create a bond with me. Like he wasn't even exactly being homophobic. He was sort of saying like, look at this great place we have. We even tolerate people like you. Why would you want to jeopardize that? And it sounds strange to say, but like, as I describe in the book, in that moment, I felt really grateful to have access to that experience that I would never otherwise have. And the next day, I flew home to Washington, D.C. I returned to my happy bubble with my husband and my house and my dogs with this memory of this experience of encountering somebody whose worldview was so different from mine and having something like a real interaction with them that I never otherwise would have had. I am taking my four children away this weekend to go skiing. And I think if you're a parent like me, you understand how important it is to have a kitchen available to you when you have four kids, which is why Airbnb is always the place that I head to just make the vacation easier. And I have always used Airbnb as a place to stay, whether it was for work or family or a girl's weekend. But more and more, my friends are using Airbnb in a totally different way as a business, as a way to invest in property and earn money for it. While you're away, your home could be an Airbnb. Hosting can easily fit into your lifestyle and it's a great way to earn some extra money. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Almost every morning of my life, I have oatmeal. Seriously, during the winter, having something hot in the morning really makes a big difference in my day. Quaker has been a trusted name in oatmeal for over 145 years, which means they've been milling oats since before the invention of the zipper, the stop sign, or ballpoint pens. Quaker has something for everyone, whether it's old-fashioned or quick oats that are good for cooking or baking. And while a ton of things have changed, the good stuff remains the same. Quaker, getting up to some good since 1877. Look for Quaker Oats at your local grocery store. This episode is brought to you by Progressive, where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. Plus, auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Quote now at Progressive.com to see if you could save. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. (sighs) 
having a real interaction with that person, how do you have that and not allow the painful parts of it or the stinger of that moment stay with you? I, I'm trying to, because I, I literally want to learn from this. Like, <laughs> how do you encounter people who, I, I see what you're saying, like he wasn't trying to be homophobic. It's still deeply right. harsh to right. hear that statement on like five levels, right? Yeah. So how do you carry the lesson from that? Like, is there something in your past or the way that you were raised by your parents or how do you have that and not take it personally, I yeah. guess? Some of it is that like, I live in a place of safety and stability and security and I have parents who love me and I have a husband who loves me and I enjoy my job. And part of the thrill and satisfaction of my job is being able to have those experiences even when they feel a little bit scary and know that I'm safe and loved and supported. Some of it is that like when I was a kid growing up in Oregon, my parents taught me that the more you know about the world, the more interesting life becomes. And so we spent a lot of time in the outdoors. Like my parents taught me to identify wildflowers and birds I and mushrooms. That chapter. And my like, boyfriend is very much, I was like, I'm going to give him this book. Like and, he will die you. for this. Yeah. And now I apply that to people and cultures and experiences. I'll, I'll tell you the thing that I have a challenge setting aside is not the sort of like personal attacks or the homophobia or anything like that. It's, it's going to a place where people are deeply suffering, whether it's, you know, I, I think about a project I did reporting on Venezuelans who were going on foot hundreds of miles through Colombia to right. reach the city of Bogota as the, their country's economy was imploding. And you talk to these people and you hear their heartbreaking stories and you just sort of do the job. And then days later, when the story is done, you hear it on the radio and it's like just a punch in the gut. And the way that I try to make that less painful is by remembering that listening itself, and I really believe this, listening itself can be an act of care and it can be an act of healing. And when someone is experiencing the worst day of their lives, and I often meet people on the worst day of their lives, whether it is a mass shooting or a natural disaster or a war or a refugee crisis, sometimes what they really want is to tell their story and have someone really listen and really hear them. Absolutely. And that's one reason I call this book The Best Strangers in the World is because I have these experiences with people that might be so fleeting. I might only ever see them in their life for 15 minutes. And in those 15 minutes, we can have an interaction that is deep and profound and real and no less meaningful for being transitory. Yeah, I think the it's like all anybody wants is this idea of I see you. Yeah. I see you in this moment as you are. And somebody knows. I think about when there started to be marches in Iran and so many women there were just saying, they were reaching out to people on social media and they were just like, please just tell our Hear story. Our just voices. tell our story yeah. because yeah. we don't have the ability to get this information out there. Can you please just say what's going on? And there's a stereotype of the sort of, vampire journalist who sweeps in and grabs a quote and then makes a paycheck off of it. And certainly we've all seen the kind of awful paparazzi scenes of everybody crowding around somebody who doesn't want their space impinged upon. But, you know, when I'm like on the border of Ukraine and Poland, which is, I was there exactly a year ago right now, actually, as the war was starting. And of course there are people fleeing Ukraine 
who don't want to talk, and I respect that. But then there are people who are desperate to talk and really want, as you say, to be heard, to be seen, to have their story told. And that's something that I can do for them. That's a service that I can provide for them, a gift that I can give to them that makes me feel a little bit better about the fact that I meet these people in such difficult circumstances and then go on my merry way. Was there something cathartic about your story being told? Yeah. Yeah, there was. I mean, it's funny because until I started writing the book, I really thought of my life as having many different components. You know, I'm a journalist on NPR. I also toured the world and sing with this band called Pink Martini. We're going to talk about that in a minute, <laughs> Alan by the Cumming way. Alan <laughs> Cumming and I made a show together no that deal. we perform. And I kind of thought of myself as having like all these disconnected projects. And in writing the book, I realized that they have so much more in common than you might think at first. They are all about connection. They are all about storytelling. They all have this unifying thread. And so, I don't know, maybe it's overstating it, but I think the the book helped me understand my values a little more deeply. It gave me a, a way to describe who I am in more specific, concrete terms, which sounds crazy to say when you're in your mid-40s, like, but it's been really helpful in that respect. And I hope that others find it helpful in that respect too. Like, I want people to walk away from the book feeling optimistic. Friends ask me all the time, like, how do you stay hopeful in the face of all the terrible things that happen in the world that you as a journalist are covering every day? And in many ways, the book is the answer to that question. Like, the stories in the book are what keep me hopeful or what keep me optimistic. Are you aware of more goodness in the world than negativity? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Even when I'm covering something terrible, I see people doing such good things. Yeah. Everywhere I go, there are people who are cooking meals, opening their homes, donating clothes. We can't stop bad things from happening. But I, I, I had a conversation with the artist Taylor Mack, who is a writer and performer who I quote probably more than anyone else in my life. And Taylor was a Pulitzer Prize finalist for this show called A 24-Decade History of Popular Music. And it was actually a 24-hour performance that told the history of the United States from 1776 to 2016, which was the year Taylor first performed it. It was epic. Without going into too much detail about that show, when I talked to Taylor about it, I said, look, you tell the story of this country through slavery and Japanese internment camps and world wars and... Uh, the civil rights movement, and, you know, all of these awful things that have happened. And so what lesson do you take away from that? And Taylor said to me, when you tell these stories, you see that things go in cycles. And I don't know why, but they do. But then, Taylor said, you find that in any of these moments, there are also the stories of the people trying to make the world better for those around them. And all you can hope to do, all you can hope to be is one of those people in whatever time, in whatever place you're living in. So cool. I love that. 24 hour. Yeah. Did Ugh. you see it? Did you I watch saw, it? So it was only performed uninterrupted 24 hours once at St. Anne's Warehouse in Brooklyn. And then it was performed in chunks in other places. So I saw it in Philadelphia in two 12-hour chunks. So it was noon to midnight <laughs> on consecutive Saturdays. And it was the most remarkable, most memorable, most epic thing I've ever seen. Absolutely what? extraordinary. Was it a one-man show or one-person show? So Taylor show? had, it started out with a 24-piece orchestra and every <laughs> hour, one member of the orchestra left. 
So the last hour was only Taylor alone on stage. There was a cast of, they were called the Dandy Minions. And at various times, there was also like a marching band and burlesque troupe. And basically every hour of the show was one decade of American history. And Taylor told each decade through a lens of people whose stories were not often told. And so like, you know, one hour was drunkenness and temperance. And one hour was the Indian Removal Act. And another hour was sort of the um, Jewish tenements of downtown. And and each hour had songs from that decade of American history. It was profoundly moving, epic, funny, hilarious. There was all kinds of audience involvement. Yeah, there are so many moments that come to mind. I'm actually getting goosebumps. I am about so it right inspired now. by when people take something and completely flip it on its head. American Utopia. Did you get mm-hmm. to see that live? I had dinner with David Byrne just the other Shut night. Can up. I tell you? Stop it. It's true. Stop being He's so cool. So amazing. Ugh. My friend Kim Hastrider introduced me to him. God. She's the founder of Paper Magazine. And he's now working on this new show, Here Lies Love. But it's actually an old show, but it's coming to Broadway for the first oh, time. Cool. I'm sorry, you were about to talk no, about American Utopia. No, I was, yes. I, I just, anytime an artist takes something and totally does it new. in such a different way. And I want to say to listeners, watcher, anybody, if you haven't seen it, mm-hmm. it is the best thing ever. Uh, I think it's on Netflix or HBO yeah, Max I think it's or Hulu something or Amazon, like that. One of those, yeah, Somewhere. you can stream it. But it is a regret of mine that I didn't get out here before it closed and see it live because, and I had heard him say, maybe it's in the documentary, but that- he needed to go on tour, but he was just sick of touring. Mm-hmm. So he's like, how can I create a tour in a way that's interesting to us? Mm-hmm. Oh, you know, so talking good. about these geniuses like David Byrne and Taylor Mack, I think about, it's, it sounds crazy, but I find it really satisfying when I see creative geniuses fail, not because of schadenfreude, but because I know that it means they're challenging themselves, they're taking risks, they're trying things that they don't know whether they can do or not. And if you want to be that level of genius, you have to keep trying things that you might not be good at, that might not turn out well. And that fear of failure can be so paralyzing. To be honest, when I started writing this book, and not to put myself on that level of genius, but when I started writing this book, I thought, you know, I have established myself in certain fields where I know I can do things well. And I don't know whether I can write a book. And part of the reason I want to do it is to face that risk of failure and to face that fear. And that's something that I've really learned from Alan Cumming, above all people. Um, just last year, he created a solo dance piece at the age of 57. I love him. And he's him. not a dancer. I freaking love him. He like, he's is so, so good cool. at so many things and still willing to try things that he may not be good at right. and take those risks. It's He's so amazing. Sick. Honestly, as an FYI, I am 3,000 words from the end of my 10th book. Congratulations. Thank you. But the amount of times on my 10th book that I broke down crying to my boyfriend was like, I am a shitty writer. What do I think I'm doing? Why am yeah. I trying to do this? Because I'm yeah. I'm working in a different way than I've worked before. A lot of my books are like, here's an answer. Mm-hmm. And this book is, I don't have answers, mm-hmm. but I got a bunch of questions. And it is tripping me out. And honestly, the amount of times that I'm like, I, I don't need to do that. I'm good. Yeah. I've had my yeah. success. Like I don't need this book. Right. And I cannot believe that I'm, close to the end. But if you weren't taking the risk, yeah. you would just be stagnant. Right, and it might be garbage, but at least I'm trying to do something in a different way, which I just so admire. And I love that you say like watching someone fail. Have mm-hmm. you seen Moon Age Daydream? 
Yeah. Oh, I interviewed the filmmaker actually. Stop. Epic. Epic. So yes. freaking incredible. But I think I was watching on a flight back from London or something and just like silently weeping mm -hmm. on an airplane mm -hmm. because- oh Well, my. let's be honest. The bar for weeping on an airplane is pretty low, but yeah, it you're is right, an amazing you're right, film. Right. It's it a perfect place film. to cry. But just anybody who struggles creatively or, or worries about challenging themselves, watching Bowie do freaking everything. Yeah. Chalk, charcoal, oil painting, performance art, like and when he's on top of the world, he goes to Europe and lives, lives in, in isolation. Yeah, like what to challenge you, himself. God, it's so inspiring. Okay, I know you're the one asking the questions, but because no, you're no, here, can I ask? Yeah, what do you wish you knew when your first book was being published? Since we're here on my publication that day, and I've never done this before. Fantastic question. Okay, I'm gonna verbally process this. Number one, maybe it's different for you. When I published my first book, nobody knew who I was, nor did they care. But I have found whether it was that first book or as a very successful author, it's on you. Mm -hmm. The publisher is gonna respectfully- <laughs> Respect. Talk a good game about all the things that they're gonna do, but really it's about you and your willingness to talk about the work and put yourself out there and keep putting it out there because- Okay, because yes. I posted on my Instagram the other day, am I getting insufferable? Is this unbearable? No. Do you need to mute or unfollow me because I'm talking about my book a no. lot? There are going to be so many people who nine months from now are like, you have a book and they follow you and they love you. And you're, I mean, the algorithm is gonna show yeah. your stuff to 1% of your followers. So what I found is that talking about the work is key. Mm -hmm. Talking about the work for a while is mm -hmm. key, but can you talk about it in a bunch of different ways? Okay. Can you share snippets? Can you share stories? Can you um, have someone else talk about it? Share a clip from a podcast episode so that you keep it mm -hmm. as a thing? Because what most people do is they'll have work come out. Here's launch day. Everybody cares for the first week. And then it just kind of goes, yeah. and they don't do anything else. And what I love to tell people is I didn't have career success as an author until my sixth book. And that book did not hit the New York Times list. I'd never been on the list, but it didn't hit the list for three months. Mm. And if I had stopped talking about it, if I had stopped believing in that work, it wouldn't have continued to like slowly grow. And then it sat on that list for a year and a half. And what kept you motivated even as the rest of the world was failing to acknowledge the incredible work that you were doing to keep saying, I'm doing incredible work, whether or not you see it that way. I, and I, I have had this for a very long time in that I'm not trying to impress the masses. I just hope it'll help one person. And I think, okay, well, this chapter is about postpartum depression. And maybe there's a mama out there who really needs this conversation right now. So if I'm willing to talk about this chapter publicly, then it's easier for her to, to find it. Uh, so I just kept with that idea. Okay. This chapter is about quitting on yourself. And so if I can talk about that, so I just always tried to associate who is this specific conversation for, and can I speak to her? Mm -hmm. Um, I'm sure there's some dudes who read my work, but it's mostly for women. So I, I do think of her as a very specific person that I'm working for. And then- That's so interesting. Yeah. So you're also trying to be the surrogate for your audience. Absolutely. In a slightly different way, but not right. all that different from the way I'm trying to sort of allow the person who's reading or listening to my work to put themselves in my shoes. A hundred percent. I think it's easy to look at the work from the outside and think, oh, I- I think I'm an expert. I am not an expert on anything 
I mean, except, you know, eating cheese maybe and like a oh, delicious Oh, I am an wine. expert on that okay, too. Great, Funny thing. Perfect, okay, great. great. We, our next episode can be about <laughs> yeah, cheese eating. There will be cheese involved. I am only ever telling you a story of something I went through and telling you some stuff I tried uh-huh. and maybe a couple of the things I tried might work for you. Yeah. And even if they don't, it gives you an idea of how you could potentially try something yourself. The other thing I think you said that is so important is that people look at folks like you or like me and say they are quote unquote successful people, which yes, sure. Right. By most measures, that's true. But the number of failures on the road to success Absolutely. have to be talked about. Otherwise people will think failure is an end and failure is not an end. It's a 100%. step along the way. And so in this book, I talk about being rejected for an NPR internship. Like Ari Shapiro, host of NPR's All Things Considered, was rejected for an internship at NPR. I talk about the first time I went out to report a story on deadline for the afternoon news program, All Things Considered. I deleted all of my audio hours before the story was supposed to air. Like, you have to talk about the fact that you didn't make the Times yes. bestseller list yes. until your sixth book right. and then until three months after it was right. published. Otherwise, people are going to think like, oh, well, Rachel Hollis can do it, but I right. can't. Right. Like, oh, I've told this story a million times, but when I wrote my first book, it was rejected by every publisher on the planet. Everybody hated it. <laughs> and I had a full breakdown, cried my eyes out. And then I just thought, well, maybe I could self-publish it. Like I already wrote the book, which I thought was the hardest part. So I self-published it. I put it on Amazon mm-hmm. and now there's like ways to do it. This was back in the day. I had no idea what I was doing. Yeah. I literally made the cover on Word, like Word. Microsoft mm-hmm. Word. Clippy Word. was saying, yes, it looks like yes, you're making a book cover. Yes. Can I help uh-huh, you? Exactly uh-huh. right. The paperclip popped yeah, up. Yeah. It was so bad. But I did it and I got it out there and I was so freaking proud of this thing, even though it was garbage and nobody cared. But even that book was like the little engine that could. Yeah. And it one person passed it to another who passed it to another and slowly it became successful. Yeah. And six months after I self-published it, a publisher called and we're like, hey, we can see your numbers. We think this is a book series and we wanna buy it. And I was like, what the crap? But I always tell that story because Every publisher turned it down. And Mm -hmm. if I had listened to every expert, Mm -hmm. I wouldn't be sitting here talking to you. So. So lucky us. Yeah, lucky us. Perseverance. Tell me about this band. Tell me about music. Okay. So Pink Martini is a little orchestra. There's more than a dozen members and they're from my hometown of Portland, Oregon. And I've been a fan of theirs since I was in high school. The band's been around for nearly 30 years. They would tour around the country and whenever they would come to DC, I would throw a party for them or a brunch or a dinner or whatever. And in about 2008, I threw a barbecue for them at my house in Washington and um, it turned into a late night sing-along around the piano. Obviously. As these things tend to do. And then the next day, the band leader, who's the pianist, called me and he said, hey, I forgot you can really sing we're writing a song for the next album that we want a man to sing because the lead singer is a woman. Why don't you come to Portland and record it with us? And like, this is a band I've loved for years. Cool. I was like, this is never actually going to happen, but sure. Yes. Okay. So they write the song. It's called, but now I'm back. And I go to Portland, I record it with them. And I think, well, it'll probably not actually make it onto the album, but like I got to sing with Pink Martini once that's fun. And then Thomas says, okay, well, we need to find a time for you to perform live with us. So, why don't you come to the Hollywood Bowl? (laughs) So the first time I ever sang on stage live with a band in front of an audience. I'm having heart palpitations It was in front of 18,000 people. And the thing about the Hollywood Bowl is 
before you go on stage, you're like standing in the wings and there are these huge framed black and white photographs of all of the legends who've performed on that very stage. So before you walk on, you're like, oh, there's Ella Fitzgerald, there's Judy Garland, Jimi Hendrix, the Beatles, and you're about to walk in their literal footsteps. So iconic. And I was like, (laughs) okay, the one time I ever performed with a band at the Hollywood Bowl, all right? Like stamp that piece of paper and file it away in the memory Wait, bank. Wait, take us into this moment. Are you peeing your pants? <sighs> Are you like going into some kind of Zen place? How do you I even made do a that? decision mm. to just savor it. I wasn't trying to prove anything to anyone. I wasn't trying to launch a music career. I just thought like, this is a make a wish dream come true moment. And I just have to enjoy it. And- I mean, even though the Hollywood Bowl is massive, it feels like a living room. Like people have been going there with their families for generations. It's this beautiful outdoor venue where you can hear like crickets and cicadas. And the nice thing about the size is that you can't actually see everybody. So you go out and it's just like dark and there's camera flashes and there's cheers. and, And it felt like people were cheering me on, like they wanted me to succeed. So that was the first time I ever sang with Pink Martini. And then Thomas said, well, if you're gonna keep singing with us, we need to find some more songs for you. And that was like 13 years ago. Wow. And I now use my vacation time from NPR to go on tour with them. And we go all over the world. I've sung with Pink Martini in, you know, Lebanon, Greece, Morocco, Spain, France, Italy. And I've recorded one or two songs on each of their last four or five albums. And it is so much fun. It feels like being on a reality show where nobody gets kicked off. Like, I love the people in the band. I love the places we go. And the act of performing is a different way of connecting with an audience. But it is also a form of connection with an audience, just like telling stories on the radio. And it's this band that, like, I've loved since I was in high school. It's crazy. So cool. It's so surreal. When you sort of got the nod, like, okay, you're going to go to Portland. Did you like, okay, I'm going to take some vocal lessons. I'm going to refresh. I'm yeah. Gonna get myself. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Absolutely. <laughs> I was like, was this just ready to roll? No, 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 no. I mean, look, when I say I just wanted to absorb and enjoy and savor it, that's true. But also I wanted to do as well as I possibly could. So like, you know, you also have to prepare and you have to do the work and you have to, you know, put in the hours. And so I did that too. And what did that look like for you? Well, I meant actually hiring a voice teacher and saying like- Like every single day? No, 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 once a week, once a week. But, but, you know, he gave me um, a recording of warmups that I would do on my own. Mm. And since then, like, I don't, regularly take voice lessons, but like there's one song that I recently started singing with Pink Martini that's in French. We sing in a lot of different languages. This song is in French and it has four different key changes. And I there was a recording of it and I was like, hmm, that sounds a little bit shouty. I think I wanna take some time and work on that. So I called up my old college friend who's now a voice teacher and I was like, can I do some lessons with you to work on this song? So I still check back in every now and then and, and try to be good at what I'm doing for fun on my vacation time. Yeah, I I feel like it's important to say because I think too often when you're not inside of something, you assume that people have natural talent, which so many times is real. But my boyfriend's in the music industry and so I've had a lot of exposure to different artists. And what I understand now is the people that do that particular thing, mm-hmm. it is a craft it is a craft they have been working on for 10 years or 20 years. They are doing vocal lessons still. They're selling out the yeah. bowl and also continuing to work on the instrument. And I think it's it's important 
to recognize, particularly for people like us, I'm just assuming that you're a little bit of a perfectionist. I don't oh, know me? you that well, oh, but I don't know it can be really about. hard to embrace the learning curve. Yes. And to yes. acknowledge that the first time you do something is not going to be as good as the 100th time you do something. And I go back and listen to my early stories on NPR and I cringe <laughs> and I think, oh God, but it's by repeating and doing and practicing that you get better. Mm -hmm. And so I often tell beginning journalists, like don't obsess over doing the story that's gonna win a journalism award. Don't obsess over the groundbreaking investigation that's gonna change policy. Just start doing things and keep doing them and do it again and again and again and again. And that's how you're gonna get better. And allow yourself to not be so great at, yeah. the, at the beginning. Yeah, allow yourself to suck. Yeah. That is the key. Because yeah. if you don't suck, you're not ever going to get to the place where it's actually right. good. How have you worked on the skill of interviews? Like, how has that gotten better over the years? Is there any- A lot of it is that, like, I will go back and listen to interviews and think, oh, I missed a moment there. I could have done that better. I also have mentors still to this day, and I ask them for feedback. And so even now I'm like listening, critiquing, trying to hone and improve and interviewing isn't one skill. Interviewing is lots of different skills, right. you so know, real. listening is a skill. Watching the clock is a skill. Knowing when to push back and when to give space is a skill. Like there are so many different subsets of skills within interviewing that I, I do think practice is the most important thing, but also, you know, I... This may be apocryphal, but I've heard that Beyonce goes back and watches videos of every performance she ever does or that she once did or something. I don't know if it's true. It sounds I might be like making something that Beyonce. Up. It sounds but like, like what she There's a do. reason Beyonce is the greatest in the world. It's because she's not just trusting that God will smile upon her, although God clearly has, you know, she's got it. She's also putting in the work. Absolutely. Do you ever listen to other people do interviews as oh, a way? Totally. Yeah. yeah, I do that too. Totally. Yeah. Other podcasters in the space, listening mm -hmm. to them being like, oh, I love how they followed up that question. Or I, or even for me going, I would have, I would mm -hmm. want to know that. Like yeah. I would, that has really helped me to sort of break into conversation and dig a little deeper. Yeah. Because often, I don't know if you find this with your interviews, but often when someone's, hitting a beat, they have something that they want to say and they're not really in a conversation. They're mm. saying what they, you know, they're saying their, their bullet point. It's so hard to get people past their talking points. Yes. I find that especially, you know, with movie stars, with politicians, with people who are doing media tours. And so that's a real skill. Yes. The other thing that I find myself doing, and I think a lot of beginning interviewers do it as well, because, well, obviously you're so busy thinking about what your next question is that you're not listening to what the person is actually yes. saying. And yeah. the person might be opening a door to a path that you didn't know existed. And you're so focused on what you're going to ask next that you don't walk through the door. Yeah. Which we do in real life too. Oh, we do yeah. this in our relationships where it's like, maybe you're in an argument with your partner and, or you're talking about something and you're like, you're not even listening to what they're saying. You're thinking about what you're, you're just like, give me an mm -hmm. opening so mm -hmm. I can tell you why you are incorrect. You're ready to hit the tennis right. ball back to them and not actually like, oh. But I think part of it is like, at least as an interviewer, and I say this is a lot of people who listen to the show who have podcasts or want to start their own podcast, that it's trusting yourself that there won't be dead air. <sighs> to be able to sit with someone one of the things I love listening to is how other interviewers use silence. Ooh, okay, I mean, like that's cool. 
There's one episode of This American Life from probably a decade ago that I will never forget because of one very long pause. The episode was called Retraction, and the theatrical monologist Mike Daisy had adapted one of his stage pieces for This American Life episode, which they had fact-checked, and he had basically lied to them. And they brought him back on for a second episode in which they re-reported the thing that he claimed was true, and then Ira Glass interviewed Mike Daisy. And in that interview, Ira basically asked Mike in a bunch of different ways, why did you lie to me? And I can't tell you what Mike Daisy said, but I can tell you about those silences. Oh, Oh, man. Or like to give you an example of one interview that I did, I was talking to a woman who was like a public health expert in Africa overseeing the distribution of COVID vaccines. And she was talking about inequity and racism and why highly developed rich white countries, countries full of white people were getting vaccine doses ahead of African countries. And at some point I said, you know, you've described the inequity, the imbalance and the way it needs to change. Racism is so deep-seated in our society. I said, like, do you believe that this ever will change or something along those lines? And there was a big pause and there was a big sigh. And then she said, one has to believe otherwise. And then she gave a very eloquent answer. But when we got out of that interview, you know, we were going to cut it down for broadcast because we we edit all things considered interviews to fit in the time slot. And I said to the producer, do not cut one second right. of that it. pause and that sigh. Because it's real. It says more than whatever it her words were more. that followed. I follow an Instagram that's uh, for screenwriters because mm-hmm. that's another thing that I'll do and push myself into. So I follow this um, screenwriting thing on Instagram and there's this quote that they've shown more than once and I'm going to butcher it. But essentially it says... The bigger the issue, the smaller you write about it. Oh. Yeah. I like, say all the time, you? tell a big story by telling a small story. Yes. This is so true. Yes. Yeah. So in screenwriting, they say, you don't talk about the war. You show an abandoned road with a little boy's shoes mm-hmm. that have been scorched by fire. Mm-hmm. That's how you talk about the war. Same thing in journalism. So cool. Same thing in journalism. Like SNAP benefits for um, food assistance that were increased during the pandemic are rolling back. We're not going to talk to the person who's writing the new food benefits policy. We're going to talk to the woman who runs a food pantry in Nevada about what she sees today compared to what she saw yesterday or somebody who's going to that food pantry for the first time. Yeah. Like that's the way you tell that story. So cool. I already know that I'm in danger of talking to you for like three hours. I'm here for it. <laughs> um, I do want well, we to- We haven't even really gotten to cheese. I and mean, I think it's important I mean, that we discuss honest, the consumption of cheese. Well, I am having faith and trusting that this is not our first, it is not our last interview. It's I our first, it's not our last. next one. Next one involves next cheese. Next one involves cheese. I hope you're hosting a party for me that ends in us sitting around a piano. With David Byrne. Par- I would literally crap my <laughs> pants. <laughs> You don't even want, like there are people I love so much that I have zero desire to ever meet them. Cause I'm not, I'm not zero chill. Yeah. Zero yeah. Beyonce is my hero in every, I never want to meet her. I never <laughs> want to be in the same room. I will lose control of all bodily function. Zero. My oh. best friend's like, Oh, I will meet Beyonce. She's I do ready. I have a story in the book about meeting Bono and sweating so profusely. I was gleaming like a glazed ham in a I photograph. Mean, it was not cute. Oh my gosh. We all just, there's, <laughs> There's the handful of people. He is. Rachel, this has been such an amazing conversation. Thank you so much. If listeners, now they're in love with you, obviously, if they weren't already, they want to go grab the book. Tell us the book. Tell 
tells social media, tells all the yes, things. Yes, the book is called The Best Strangers in the World, Stories from a Life Spent Listening. I'm on Instagram and Twitter at Ari Shapiro, where thanks to your advice, Rachel, people can find me being absolutely shameless in my promotion of this book. Oh, man. And um, I've really enjoyed this. Thank yeah. you. I don't think it's shameless. Uh, I think when, when your intention is true, and I think at least for me, double checking myself before I post something like, what is the goal here is really the way that you connect with people. It was so rad to meet you. Oh, this was amazing. Yeah, I loved it. Absolutely. The Rachel Hollis podcast is produced by me, Rachel Hollis. It's edited by Andrew Weller and Jack Noble. It's your time. Join global thought leader, executive producer, and New York Times bestselling author T.D. Jakes and today's leading culture shifters for an experience unlike any other. At the 2024 International Leadership Summit, spiritual and business leaders can gain the practical tools they need to maximize their timing for success. With world-class discussions, breakout sessions, and networking opportunities, this is where your dreams turn into reality. Timing is everything, and your time is now. March 21st through 23rd in Dallas, Texas. Register today at thisisils.org.